Amen. So last week, uh, Pastor Ron talked about the role of the church. I, I was sitting out there and I was listening to him and it started really speaking to my spirit as I was thinking about what I was going to speak on today. And he started talking about the role of the church and why the church matters. And it really spoke and moved something inside of me. And God started to speak to me about this sermon, uh, about what, what we're going to talk about today. But I do want to talk a little bit about what he said about the church. You know, uh, basically, the church is in the building blocks to which God builds his kingdom. Okay? So he uses the church to build his kingdom in the world. He makes sure that everything is done through his church. It's where he establishes doctrine, fellowship, communion, prayer. All of that is established here. And these are the, some of the pillars that uh, Pastor Ron talked about last week. If you haven't heard it yet, I recommend that you go back and you listen to it online. You can do that, by the way. If you didn't know, you can also download the notes from easysermons.com. Make sure that you do that as well. It's always great. Uh, you'll, you'll get to see, you know, if you watch, you'll get to see what put, gets put off on the screen. But if you also download those sermon notes from easysermons.com, you can read along with what Pastor Ron was saying. So I, I recommend that as well if you're a audio or video or, or audit, auditory or visual learner right there. You can do both. It's great. So, uh, you know, the, the church is the bride of Christ and the family of God within the earth. Uh, in, in Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 16, it says, uh, it, it is Jesus talking to the disciples and Jesus asks Peter a question. He, he's asking, you know, what do people say that I am? And then he asks Peter directly, who do you say that I am? And so in uh, Matthew 16, verse 15, he said, who do you, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I've always pictured this, um, I always pictured this growing up, when you would hear the, the excerpt from this, it would say the gates of hell hell will not prevail. And I always pictured this. I pictured this little country church up on a hill and inside, you know, it's got the steeple because, you know, that every church, when I was young, every church had a steeple, you know, like there, well, what building is that? I don't know. It looks like a warehouse to me. You know, that's what, if we were to pass by this church when I was little, because it didn't have a steeple, you know? So in my mind, I see this little steeple there and I, and I had this picture of these praying believers just fervently in prayer, asking God for protection and deliverance as this, and, and they would be on this hill, you know, in this mammoth Satan just coming up and just with this angry look, just reaching up his foot, ready to stomp on the church. And then just those prayers of the saints, just holding back that foot. And, you know, and God is prevailing because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's what I had in my head, you know. And while that's not untrue, I had it a little backwards. As I've grown 
And as I've seen what we do here, what we do all over the world, it is not the gates of the church that prevail against the attack of Satan. It is the gates of hell that do not prevail against the church. So even right now, we have people going all over the world. Right now, they're traveling to the forgotten, to, to the, what the world would consider unworthy, to the lost souls, the little ones, right now. And our church, this church, the church of God is going right now to redeem them. Right now, all over the world to redeem them. That is a stronghold of Satan that we are marching into right now. And the gates of hell will not prevail. <laughs> Amen, right? I mean, that is, that is the picture of what that means. The gates of hell will not prevail against. And whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed here. And whatever you bind in heaven will be bound here. That is powerful. And it's not that that little country church isn't up on that hill with their steeple praying. But it is the vision of God is that the church is the kingdom of God on this earth. That is what God uses to build his kingdom. Wow. Uh, this is such a, a, powerful, a powerful phrase to me. You know, as we go, you know, the church is the bridegroom of Christ, is, is the bride of Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom. So the church is the bride, and, you know, with, with marriage, the bride takes on the name of Christ, right? So we get to carry, just like my wife carries my name, right? She changed her name. So we change our name and we get to carry the name of Jesus. Now, this is the name that is above every name. And we are carrying that name here and all over the world. It is such a powerful name. I, I remember one of my favorite Joshua prayers. Uh, it is in that moment where the Israelites had just come off of one of their greatest victories as they make their march coming into the promised land. They had just defeated Jericho, this great city with these great walls, and they marched around it. You, you remember if you went to Sunday school, you heard that, you probably sang the song, you know? I, I sang the song. And so, and these walls come down, and the reputation of the Israelites, of the Hebrews, was man, there is something to this God. There, people are scared. And the very next kingdom they come to is so small that they didn't even send out all of their forces. They sent out this really small force to go fight the kingdom of Ai, AI, sorry, Pastor Ken, either one. And so, uh, and they lose. They get whooped. It's not even like, it's a rout. They lose, and Joshua is beside himself. He is beside himself. He tears his clothes, and he goes before God. And the reason I love this prayer is it is because it's such an honest prayer. You know, so many times when we go to pray, we think that it has to be sanitary. We think that, well, I can't pray until I get my heart right, you know? I can't go to church until, until I'm right. That's the same thing as saying, well, I can't go to the gym until I'm in shape. Well, <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
That doesn't make any sense at all. You, you go to the gym to get in shape. You go to the church to get your heart right. You pray so you can get your heart right. Joshua comes in there with an angry heart, with an uh, just sad. I mean, he is, he is defeated. And he goes to God and he says this. I'm going to paraphrase. It's in Joshua chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase. He says, we should have just stayed where we were. Why would you lead us out here? Like almost accusing God, you know? It's like, uh, I don't recommend accusing God. That's not what I'm saying. Don't take that. That's not the takeaway here. But he's, he is in God's face and he said, we should have just stayed where we were. If we're going to come out here and get beat, what good is it that we came here? If now that we're beaten, everybody's going to hear about it and they're going to know how weak we are. They're going to know that now, now we're going to have enemies that are going to surround us on all sides. And if we're defeated, God, who will carry your great name then? That's the last thing Joshua says to God. If we're defeated, who will carry your great name? And Joshua was fired up. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a brave prayer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that, that is, he was fired up and God hit him right back. And he said, get up, wash your face and take the next step. And he laid out the next step for him. And you know, that is, I love that prayer because of what Joshua said. There is a faith in knowing that God will not let his namesake fail. There is a faith in knowing that if I show up and I give my heart to this, and I give my talent in my time and carry the name of Jesus, the name of God, God will not let that fail. God will not let his name fail. Now, that doesn't mean that you get to take his name and use it as a whip and go punch people in the face with it. It doesn't mean that you get to go use that and, and do things that aren't what he would direct you to do, right? That's, that's not what it means. It means that if you are doing the will of God, the way of God, following the word of God, carrying the name of God, you will not fail. Amen? Amen? So I, that's why I love that prayer. Uh, you know, Satan has no power to hold back the tide of the church. He has no power to hold back the tide of the church. But because he has no power to hold back that tide, when we are in one heart and one accord marching across the world carrying the name, the banner of Jesus, he would seek to undermine us in different ways. He can't, he can't beat us in a straight fight. That's what I'm saying. He can't beat us straight up. He's got to figure out how to do it, get us to defeat ourselves. Uh, one of the greatest fallacies about religion and the church uh, that you'll hear I've heard uh, comedians talk about it, modern-day philosophers talk about it. You'll hear it in the news, and, and it's a subtle undertone that is an attack on the church, okay? This is what it is. It is that some of the greatest and most bloody wars are fought in the name of religion. Have you ever heard that? If you haven't heard it, you will, because that is a message that is coming across the news. If you watch the news, I don't recommend that, by the way. But if you did, you, you might hear that. Uh, 
it is, you're, you're hearing that. By the way, anybody that is a historian, uh, you know, knows about war, knows that that is absolutely not true at all. You know, it is, it is 100% a lie. But yet we will hear those whisperings, you know, this is a, this is a religious war. This is, the, you know, more bloodshed has been in the name of the Bible and, and, and they're trying to undermine God's bride. Because ultimately, the world is afraid of God's word because they don't understand it. They are afraid. It is up to us to bring them and teach them what the love of God is. Because when you're Jericho or when you're AI and you see these great things and great and powerful things, it is nothing but scary. It is nothing but this is coming for me and the judgment. But it is up to us, the church, to teach them that it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. It is the love of God. And so uh, as we see these messages go out and as we see these things come about in modern-day philosophy, in uh, the news cycles, things like that, we will see Satan attempt to undermine badmouth pick your word there, the church. And, uh, but what we need to remember is at the end of all things, everything that God is doing, every story that he ever told, everything in the Bible is nothing but the epic saga of God and his redemption of his great love. That is the whole story of the Bible. Every story brings us back to the redemption of man, the redemption of the church. That is what God is about. God is about family. Because at the end of all things, the only thing that God will have is family. Right? And so uh, this epic saga that we see, we will see more attacks on this. Today we're going to talk about family. Just as God uses the church to be the building blocks of his kingdom, God uses the family to be the building blocks of the church. All right? Y'all see that? So we're going to talk about family today. We're going to talk about some things, some practical things, some theological things, some even philosophical things. One of, one of the ways right now, if, again... I don't recommend it, but if you watch the news, you'll see a, a lot of conversations going on that would undermine the role of family in today's society. Okay, you'll see a lot of this. Uh, you, you'll see, uh, you know, the, while the attack of the church is still happening, the attack on the family is even greater. It's even greater. We're, we're facing things like uh, identity politics, and, and this is the idea that the political group, uh, whatever group that you belong to, is actually the most important thing. That group that's based on race, that group that's based on political party affiliation, sexual orientation, all those things that you hear, that's more important than your role in the church. That's more important than your role in your family. That's what we'll start to see. We'll hear phrases like toxic masculinity and social justice. And these phrases are out there to undermine the role of family in the world. 
Okay? So it, it's things like this. You might see something like, um, you know, you might hear toxic masculinity. You might hear, uh, you know, for every uh, dollar that a man makes, a woman makes 75 cents. Also, if you are a man, you have no right to talk about abortion because you don't, you don't know what that's like. You don't know what it's like to carry a baby. So you have no right to speak in that. And in the very next segment, on the very same news station, they won't be able to tell you what a woman is. <laughs> so, so, so I have no right to talk about it, but I also can't have it defined because it changes. And I get, but I could decide to be one if I wanted. <laughs> Everything about that is designed to minimize the traditional roles as if they are something bad. As if they are something wrong that we need to get away from because that's antiquated. That's, that's old way of thinking. It's not enlightened. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like the same dadgum argument we've been listening to for 6,000 years? All the way back to half God really said you will die if you eat of that fruit. You're just not enlightened enough, right? If you eat this, you'll be like God. You will know something, something new. It is the same temptation. The same temptation right here today to undermine this and what we have. So for that reason, I'm going to talk a little bit, spend the next few minutes talking a little bit about family. I'm going to talk a little bit about what the family does. Here we go. Um, uh, there is a, according to a recent Harvard survey, uh, study, excuse me, a, researchers were shocked to find that individuals that foster deep and meaningful relationships with their family after they move out live healthier lives. Not only do they live healthier lives, but they also live longer. Not only do they live healthier lives and live longer, but they teach their children to model that behavior. Go visit grandma. Go visit granddad. Have a meal together. Sit down and have this meal. And those kids do that as well. This is a generational study. And as families embrace togetherness, they live a more healthy life and they live longer. Here's what's hilarious to me. They were shocked to find this. Here's why it's hilarious. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, <laughs> honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth, <laughs> right? So the, the, the first commandment with promise actually could have saved Harvard a bunch of research money, right? <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> amen, amen, there, there it is. Like, we, we can't believe it. It's one of the most amazing things to me when you, when you experience, you know, there is a lens that because we are in the world, even though we are not of the world, we are in the world, there is a lens that we have to look at things through. We have to understand that, you know, we are surrounded by a world that that does not love God, and we live in it, and we have to deal with it. But it is always amazing to me, regardless, that when a biblical truth shows up, the world is absolutely surprised by it. You know, this text that has been around forever, that every generation has had access to, 
since the beginning of time, the word of God, whether it be through verbal or written word, every generation has had the opportunity to hear it. And we're still surprised when it's right. I, I just remember, uh, this. I'm about to age myself here, but there was a time where we didn't know what the Hittites were as in, in secular history, okay? We didn't know what they were. Now, the Hittites were a group of people that the Israelites fought several times. And one of the last times that the Israelites fought the Hittites, this is how it went. I want you to wipe out the Hittites off the face of the earth to where that no one will ever know their name again, no one will hear a word of them, and all their history and all their names will be erased. That's what God said. Secular historians go, well, we know the Bible's not right because we can't find any record of the Hittites. <laughs> yeah. It's hilarious to me. You know, like, well, of course, I mean, like, you... Did you not read what it said about the Hittites? You know, and that was one of their big ringers. You know, we can't find it. Now, since then, we have found references to Hittites from other, other peoples who referenced this great power and called them the Hittites. And we have since discovered they actually did exist and everybody recognizes, okay, I guess they were really a people. You know, but uh, they basically have made no contribution to society. Nothing that they've ever done has lived on past them. There is no history. There is no anything other than what's in the word of God. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing because that's what God said would happen, and that's what did happen, you know. And the world catches up to that kind of history and goes, wow, who'd have thunk it, you know. And so, all right, uh, a couple more things about family. 85% of all juveniles sitting in a prison today grew up in a broken home, 85%. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in a chemical abuse center are from a broken home. Now, I don't mean broken like the parents were divorced. I mean broken worse than that. There is a parent missing, okay? There's somebody that's not in their life. 71% of all high school dropouts, fatherless homes. 63% of youth suicides fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions, broken homes, missing a parent. 72% of adolescents serving sentences for murder, fatherless homes. These are, these, this data is too great to ignore. Too great to ignore. Uh, if you come from a home without a father, you're 4.6 times more likely to commit suicide. You're 5.1 times more likely to be poor. 6.3 times more likely to be in a state-operated institution. 6.6 times more likely to drop out of school. 11 times more likely to commit rape. 15 times more likely to have social, behavioral, or mental disorders. 15 and a half times more likely to end up in prison while still a teenager. 24 times more likely to run away. 33 times more likely to be seriously abused. And 73 times more likely to die before the age of 25. And the world would say that family doesn't matter. The world would say that this basic unit that God uses to build his church 
We need to do away with this. It's, it's, it's not enlightened enough. It doesn't give children the right to choose who they want to be. Let me tell you, there's a lot of foolishness bound up in the heart of a child. Sorry, that's mean, but it's also biblical. Don't be mad at me. You know. so, uh, <laughs> so here's the amazing thing about that statistic. It's not what we're talking about today, but, but I think it's interesting. The last ones that I talked to you about, those last, you know, more likelies that I told you, all from fatherless homes. Guess what happens if you reverse it? So if we take the same data, this is single mother's homes with the absence of the father. If we were to take that same scenario and switch it, single father's homes to the absence of a mother, those statistics go away. There is no difference in those last statistics between a two-parent home and a fatherless home, or in, in, a, uh, in, in a home with a father. So it is the addition of the father that makes the difference or the subtraction of it. That is one of the things, one of the great lies that you will see on TV right now is that the world doesn't need fathers. It is one of the great lies. The, if I hear the word toxic masculinity again, you know what I mean? Like, boy, that is such a lie from the pit of hell. I, I'm not going to deny that there are 0.05% of men who would take the strength that God has endowed upon them and use it as a weapon of ill against a family. I am not going to say that that does not happen because it does happen. It does. As a foster parent for almost 10 years, we saw it happen. But guess what protected my kids? Me. They came to me, and guess what ended in their life? All of those statistics that I just read for you. Because of family. We redeemed those children. Right now, our church is headed to redeem families across the world. Amen. Do not discount your role. Some of, these, some of these pieces in traditional marriages aren't there because we don't know. They're there because that's the right way. So many times that we look at God, and I'll admit, I do this. I make this mistake. It is, you know, it is the same question, you know, why is this here? Why is this rule in place? This is just God. You know, especially as a young person, you know, which was a really long time ago for me, but especially as a young person, it was God the cosmic killjoy giving me another rule I have to follow that keeps me from doing the things that I want to do, right? These things weren't put in place to suck joy from my life, but, but to protect my soul, to protect who I am and who I'm going to be. These things, these rules that God places aren't to keep us from having fun. They are to protect us and to help us experience something in the way that he originally intended. So let's, uh, let's get to some practical items with family, okay? We're, we're going to talk about a few things to strengthen your family and the bond that you have together. I'm going to talk to men, I'm going to talk to women, and then I'm going to just talk about some things that you can do together as a family. I know, I, you know, almost every time I come up here, I talk about 
fathers in their role. It's just something that God speaks to me over and over again. So I can't help it. It's just kind of who he made. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to read the gospel of Luke, you're going to, you're going to hear it in the flavor of Luke. If you're going to read the gospel of Matthew, you're going to hear it in the flavor of Matthew. If you're going to hear uh, Luke Bourgeois preach, you're going to, you're going to probably hear about fathers. You, you, that's just the way that it's going to be. All right. So uh, one of the number one things that you can do as a man to protect, nurture, and grow your family. You ready? I'm meddling now. Love your wife. Love your wife. Uh, in Ephesians 5, in verse 25, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that he should be holy and without she should be holy without blemish so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. A couple things here. It's important, okay? This is a command. It is not a conditional command. It is not a love your wife if she respects you. Your wife does not have to earn your love. You are commanded to love your wife whether or not she deserves it, whether or not she earns it, and whether or not she yelled at you this morning on the way to church, you know? (laughs) My wife didn't yell at me, mostly because I got up before her and left early, but that's, <laughs> I just wanted to be clear. I wasn't using a personal example. And so, uh, uh, you know, what does that look like? Okay. You know, when we say lay your life down, love your wife as Christ loved the church, let's put some legs to that. Okay. Uh, what are the most significant things that you can do, men? To illustrate this, one of, the, one of the biggest ways you can do that, lend your wife your strength, okay? Now, God gave man strength, uh, mental fortitude, physical fortitude, energy. He, he gave us those things. If you love your wife, give your wife those things, okay? Okay, I'm hearing you. What, what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. So... <laughs> So one of the things that that means is, uh, you know, keep in mind your wife's role. Your wife is an incubator of things, okay? She takes what you bring and makes it into something different, something better. But that process isn't always something that I understand, okay? So, for example, your wife is going to have some terrible ideas, okay? I mean, just terrible. She's going to go, you know what we should do this Saturday? We should wake up. It's 7 in the morning on your only day off, and we should go to a flea market. <laughs> we should drive out to some fruit. We should get some fresh fruit, go to, a, uh, go to a fruit stand, you know, farmer's market, and then go to a flea market. We can buy some things, and she'll go out, and she'll buy these things that say, eat, pray, love, or, you know, and just throw them up on your wall, and just these signs that are just like, and you're just like, what? That sounds so bad. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do any of that. That's just awful. Who would want to do that? But you go and you do that and then you walk into your house and you've got fresh fruit. And you've got this nice room to walk into that just, I don't know what happened, but it was a blank wall. But now all of a sudden it feels like a home. Now all of a sudden the time and energy that I gave to her, 
the money that I allowed her to spend, that sounded mean, not allowed her, you know what I'm saying, just that I gave willingly with no uh, conditions or anything like that, or guilts or restraints. <laughs> I'm going to get beat up in the parking lot. <clears throat> All of a sudden, I go to my house, and it's a home. Because my wife took what I gave and she made it better than what I could have done on my own. So when I say lend your wife your strength, because if you do, what you really do is you, if you love your wife, you are really loving yourself. That's what it's talking about. Lend your wife your strength. Give her your energy. I hate going to the beach. I hate it so much. It's the worst activity I can... If you were to list out activities, that would be one of the last things I would want to do. Just the sand, the water. I've got five kids. The chances of me coming back with all of them alive are really low. Like, I'm setting up a canopy so everybody can be happy. We got snacks. My sandwich has dirt in it. My kids go in the water, play in the sand, reach their hand in the chips bag, and chips are soggy and sandy, and it's the worst. My canopy's blowing away. My kids are drowning in a rip current. It is just constant for me. I, I hate going to the beach. Guess where we're going today. And that is the only negative thing I'm going to say about it because it was funny. I wouldn't normally, I'm going to be 100% in. I am going to go chase that canopy as it rolls down the beach because I will not <laughs> anchor it properly. I am going to eat a soggy chip. That is what's going to happen. Because if I lend my strength to my wife, she will take that day and where all I see is sand and dirt and heat and sunburn and chasing a canopy and keeping the kids from drowning, my kids will remember it forever. It will be a core memory. They will either remember me being a bump on a log, grumpy and yelling at my wife for making me do this, or they will remember me playing with them in the ocean. Which side do I want to fall on? The side that gives energy and love and strength to my wife. This was a turning point in my marriage, by the way. Uh, when, we were, when we were fostering, uh, it was a while back, we... Belinda and I, we have had, I mean, you know, we'll be celebrating our 18th anniversary in, next week. And, yep, yep. And there is a lot of life in there. There was a time, and I'm not going to go into it, but there was a time where, oh, man, if one of us would have left the other one, we, the other, I, if she would have left me, I would have been so relieved, and vice versa. But we were just both so dadgum hard-headed that we didn't. And God has redeemed that. But let me tell you what the turning point in my marriage was. Is I realized this. If you're in your marriage and you're having a hard time, know this. You cannot change your spouse. You can change you, though. That's who you can change. So do that. Change you. And that's what I was determined to do. Okay, God, I cannot change my spouse. She's mean. <laughs> but I can change me. What do I do? And he spoke to me so clearly. And I, I was asking in earnest. I, I really meant it. What can I do? And I prayed and I studied and I, and I talked to people and got advice. And here's what I heard. He said, you, you, 
you rain on every parade she has. Every idea that she gives you, you always say no to. Everything that she wants to do, you pull her down. She doesn't say anything about it, but you do this. And I was like, no, I don't. Ooh, I do. Says, so here's what you're going to do, son. The next idea she has, the next thing that she says, you're going to do it. And it was like, the, I can see God, you know, with his hands on his hip. You're going to do it, and you're going to be happy about it. You're not going to say one negative thing. You're going to give it all of your heart. You're just gonna, you are 100% in. That's what you need to do. And the next thing she did was say, we're going we're to go to the zoo, which is also a terrible idea, just like the beach. <laughs> And so here we are, we've, we, we're fostering kids and we're getting, um, we're getting some respite care, which is respite care is when you are babysitting other people's foster kids. So somebody else has something to do and you're going to babysit. So we're babysitting these kids over the weekend. So we're getting two boys that, that take three to four pills every meal to combat ADHD, okay? These guys are nuclear. I mean, like they are just all over the place. It's just, I'm like... And she goes, let's go to the zoo. And then in the meantime, we get a placement that very day, the, the day before we're going to the zoo. And the placement is the two girls that are now upstairs. Okay? So we've also got Brandon. That makes five kids. So these two boys, Brandon, and these two girls. Four of these kids have been in my house less than 24 hours. And all I can think about is that someone is going to fall into the lion's den. <laughs> They're going to have to shoot Harambe. That's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking about. And she says, let's go to the zoo. And I'm about to go, ooh, that's a... T Son, what did I tell you? And I can just see God with his hands on his hips. What did I tell you? Yeah, but you didn't... I mean, you didn't mean this time, did you? <laughs> and I said, this is what happened. She said... We should take him to the zoo. You know what, baby? You're right. We should take him to the zoo. You know what we can do? I can get the wagon. We can load up the ice chest with some snacks. We can go. It'll be great. I'll, I'll walk in front. You walk behind or vice versa, however that wants. And she looked at me and she was shocked. Like she really expected me to shoot that down. Like it was her first reaction. She didn't want me to shoot it down, but she expected me to shoot it down or find some fault with it. Or worse, acquiesce do it, and then be bitter in my heart about it the whole dadgum day and hold it against her for the next three weeks. And I was in, 100% in, and I said that. And she goes, yeah, and I can, I can make sandwiches, you know. And so we, we go on, and we had the best day. There was no Harambe. There was <laughs> no one fell into the lion's den. And this was a core memory for my two daughters that are upstairs. She took my strength and made it into something that I could have never done on my own. That's what loving your wife means. Doing the things you don't want to do. Whew, I'm meddling now. All right, so I know some of you ladies are amening, but here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands. This is for you women. Submit to your husbands. Now, in Ephesians 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, yeah. All right, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Well, 
I think we can close. That's pretty much all we need to talk about. No. So let's, let's, let's talk about that. This command is also without condition. Just as a man has to love his wife, regardless of the way that she treats him and regardless of the way that she talks to him, the way that she acts, a, man, a wife has to respect her husband. You ready? You ready for this? Even if you believe he is unworthy of respect, respect has to be earned. Not so. This is a respect of the position. This is a respect of what God has put in place. It is not conditional. The man does not have to earn this. Ooh, I am going to get beat up after church in the parking lot. So. It is important for this to happen. Can you imagine if your husband ever said, I would love you if you were worthy of it? That's the same thing that happens. You're not worthy. I would respect you. I would submit to you if you were right. That's the same. You are saying the same thing to him is the words that I just said to you. Ooh. Oh, that hit below the belt, man. What are you doing? These things will improve your family, which is the building block of the church. Okay? This is important. All right, so now, now that I've ruined your day, let's, uh, let's talk about some things you can do as a family putting this together, okay? As a family, pursue godliness together. Pursue godliness together. Keep this in mind. The responsibility of this really does fall on the man, but it's also everybody's responsibility. There are things that I don't see that my wife sees that I have to listen to her about, about godliness for my family. There are things that I'm going to see that she's not going to see that she needs to listen to me about, about godliness for the family, okay? This could be anything from, godliness could be anything from, I don't like uh, my daughter wearing her cheerleader outfit anywhere but cheer, you know, because... That uniform, that is my right as a father. That is my right as a father. And at the same time, it's my wife's right to tell me to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) That she does it in a controlled environment. It is in the gym, and that's the only place that she wears that. I'm like, okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. It's not her right to tell me to shut up in public, by the way, although she probably would. But, you know, it's neither here nor there. So it is my right to guard godliness in my family. It is my job, my responsibility to as the man. Okay. These are the things in 2 Corinthians 10 chapter 5, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. These are the things that you're guarding against. You're taking the pieces that could lead to something more wrong in the future and you're stopping it before it gets big. Let us consider that. So, if you are tempted, if you're, if you're tempted by anything, pick, pick something. You take away the temptation, okay? So, if you know that, um, if you know that you're going to be tempted to go to the liquor store and, you know, uh, and buy a, some, some Jack Daniels, and God's told you, you, you've struggled with addiction your whole life, and, and, and you know that you're going to be tempted. Well, you know what you shouldn't do? You shouldn't drive by the liquor store, you know? You should pick a different way home so that you're not 
licking your lips as you drive by down the street. You know, you should drive a different route home. These are the things that it's talking about. You take those thoughts captive before they turn into actions. You do the same thing for your family. You see what's coming down the road and you go a different way. You keep your son from falling into the pitfalls of pornography. You guard against that. Because I promise you, Satan is coming for your son's mind. He's coming for his heart. He's coming to pervert the role of a husband and a wife. And if he can't get you to fail, he'll get him to fail. And you have to guard against that as a father, as a family, for, for your family. You must pursue godliness and you must do it together. Okay, number two, foster righteousness. Well, isn't that the same thing? Yes and no. So uh, considering righteousness, the righteousness that we have when we get saved, the salvation that we have, yes, okay? But what I'm talking about when you're saying fostering righteousness, what I'm talking about is the badge that we now get because we are godly, because we are redeemed, the rights that righteousness gives you, okay? So what that means is, is because I am the head of the household, I get to with authority, stand in the gap for my family. That's the right of righteousness. Does that make sense? I get to say this far and no more against the attacks of Satan. I have the right to stand in the gap for my family. God made me a warrior. Everything about me. Everything about me. My temperament. My, my physical strength, well, you know, and now you're looking at me and you're like, well, maybe not you, but maybe Hunter. And so, so but, but God did. He made you a warrior. He gave you a right. And in righteousness, you have the right to stand in that gap for your family. You have the right to speak into the lives of your children. You have the right to speak in the life of your wife, of your family. It is the right of righteousness. So because you are righteous you get to operate in the authority that God has given you of the position that you are in. Does that make sense? Maybe? Okay, we'll move on anyway. So, uh, and then uh, create opportunities to worship together. Okay, uh, the first and easiest way to do this, practical, go to church together. You're creating an opportunity to worship together. Your son is going to participate in worship when he sees you worship. Your daughter is going to participate in worship when she sees you participate in worship. Pray together. Find a reason to pray together, whether that be for a, you know, a big job interview coming up or because your daughter skinned her knee outside and she's coming in crying. Pray for that too. Find an excuse. Do, pray together. Find a reason to pray together, not just at your meals, Pray together. Number three, read the word together. This is the hardest one. Because here's what you do. Here's what everybody does. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to commit to this, and you're going to give God your leftover time. At the end of Tuesday night, when we've gotten everything done, we're going to, read, we're going to sit and read a Bible story together. That will never happen. Because if you give God your leftover time, you'll never have any. There will always be something that comes up, a homework project that you hear about to do the next day. Robin probably assigned it to your kids. probably her fault. So There's always something. You have to be strategic. You have to make this priority. You have to make this first. 
you have to say at seven o'clock on Tuesday night, we are reading a Bible story together. That's what you have to do. You have to be strategic. You have to do it on purpose. Read the word of God together. This builds the family. Do not give God your leftover time. Give God your first time. Just as God uses his church to build his kingdom, he uses families to build his church. And by doing these things, we can make a stronger kingdom of God together. Consider this as we close. This week, you know, pray. Pray for God to guide you in how you can better lead your family. I challenge you, pray with your wife every night this week. Find time. Find time to pray with your wife at least once a day, every day this week, if you don't do it already. This will change your family life. Add some of these things to your, your daily tasks. Uh, for you guys that are visiting us online, make sure that you do this. You know, make this a priority. Uh, making family a priority, biblical family, a priority will make a difference in your life. Make God a priority in your family. It's not just a relationship that you have that is singular between you and God. It is a relationship that you are responsible for with your family. We see, uh, we see these generations. Uh, you know, I was thinking about Jana. Your dad and my dad served together at church. We've served together at church. Our kids now serve at church. Three generations. I, I, was, looking, uh, I was looking today. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I was looking today up on stage. There were the, about 90%, about 90% of our musicians were multi-generational church server, people who served in church, multi-generation. Some are three. April, you, you had three generations in there. You're in the middle. You've got your dad and you've got your kids that were here playing today. I mean, what, what a testimony. Three generations serving in, in church all in one service, right? Amen. So consider these things, church. Uh, consider, consider what we do. And uh, we're going to pray and we're going to dismiss you guys online. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, teaching us today. Thank you for, for bringing us into the light uh, of, of your gospel, God. And I ask that you let this word sit in our heart. You let it grow. You let it be uh, something that we can build upon as we add these things to what we do. Let this word grow in our hearts. Let it multiply and let it go all over the world. In your name, I pray, amen.